0: Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for another night studying your word. I thank you, Lord, that we have this word before us because there's so much that you've given to us about what's coming and so much we can know about it, Father, so much that you have asked us to know. And I know, Father, that many are reluctant to get into things that seem um, daunting and confusing. And yet, Father, we know that is only the product of the enemy. And that you have given us this word to understand it. You've made it clear to us so that we'll know it. Uh, there's something in it, Father, that will bless us. We thank you for that up front before we even know what it is that we will receive. And I ask, Lord, that as we study and learn that maybe the most important thing we'll receive, Father, is a confident assurance that we can understand these things and that what has been placed here is for our benefit. And uh, we, will, we will find that benefit soon enough. And I thank you, Lord, in advance for that. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, welcome back to our Revelation study. And I know because we haven't been here for a little while, we want to catch up on some things we did two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I guess it is now, and make sure that we're all on the same page as we move forward now into the rest of what we have in this book. We're going to be doing some things outside the book of Revelation tonight, much as we did last week. Next week we'll come back into it, but even then we'll take time again shortly thereafter to dive back out. We're going to do this a little bit, just for a few weeks, because there is some important background, not in the book, elsewhere in the Bible, that has to be uh, something you understand, if you're going to understand what we're going to go do in the book of Revelation. So let's start that review here. We've moved through the first two sections of the book of Revelation. That's according to how John divided those sections out. You remember we did this in the first few weeks of our study, and we don't need to repeat it. You see the slide. Uh, but we studied the things that John saw in the first chapter, which was largely the vision of Jesus, of course. And in that, we saw him get com- uh, this receive this commission. And in this commission, he was going to write what he sees. And that chapter gave us uh, confidence to know that the contents of this revelation were trustworthy. And then we studied the things that are, which comprise chapters two and three, and the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches. And particularly, we focused on the fact that these are prophetic. That in addition to their literal truth, they also foretell seven phases that the church will pass through during its time on earth, during its history. And we studied those seven periods, or at least in passing we did, and we focused on the seventh. And in that letter we learned that we are the generation currently living in the last of those seven periods within the church. And that means we're in the apostate church, we're in the false teaching church, we're in the church. That has unbelief rampant within the body, so to speak. And so the times that are, was the way Jesus described that second part, they are the times that are because they will remain present tense, are, until there is no church anymore. And then and only then will we have moved past part two and into the third part of the book of Revelation, the events that pick up after the things that are. So this period of the church, this thing I call the church age, this period between parts one and two is a bridge. It's a bridge in the book of Revelation that bridges the moment that John saw what he saw in first century uh, Judea, or first century uh, Asia Minor, specifically, it bridges that until we get to those things that happen after the church age, the things which are in chapters four and onward. So this period of the things that are moves us a into the future. Now, we're not physically experiencing anything outside of this age yet. We're still in this age. So at this point, we're now gonna start studying things yet to come for the most part. But as we said last week, before we can move into the things yet to come, the things that will follow the church, we have to gain a better perspective historically on what God is doing at all. And In other words, if we're gonna understand how he ends the age, we need to understand how and why he began it. Because God is not a God of of random behavior. Everything he does has purpose. And so he established this age for a reason. It makes sense then that the way it will come to completion is connected to its purpose for existence. And so we're going to watch how this thing came to pass by studying its beginnings. And we did that, as you remember, looking backward in time, looking at what we see in the book of Daniel. Daniel is the book that tells us about this Period of history that the church occupies, and more than just the church, of course, it's a much longer period of time. And we studied chapter 2 last time we were here, and tonight we're going to open up in chapter 7. Uh, both of these chapters are chapters that establish the age of the Gentiles. This is the period of history that God is working in right now, and that name reflects its purpose. Jesus gave us that name out of Luke 21. And the purpose of the age is to make a period of history in which Israel will be under judgment. This is a period of history for Israel's judgment while on earth. And understanding this period of history is absolutely essential to understanding anything you read in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapters 4 and onward. Because the events of Revelation are actually the culmination and the fulfillment of the things that God has appointed for Israel in this age. And it's going to happen to us time and time again, not just tonight, not, not, not just next week, but time and time again, I'm going to refer back to the age of the Gentiles and everything you're learning from last time we met and tonight. So if you didn't see last time we met, go online, watch it please. And then when you pay attention to tonight, you put the two together, you're going to have some important background. And don't think it's just going to be in your head and then out. You're going to hear about it over and over again, because it is literally the key to understanding some important things in the book of Revelation. So Jesus told us in Luke 21 that our current age is the age of the Gentiles. And he said this age would be marked by three circumstances uh, for Israel. And the first of these in, in this present age that we're in, the first of these present age circumstances would be that Israel would be subjugated to Gentile powers. And so in this present age, we have three definitions we have to carry through. As long as these three, the first being that Israel is subjugated, as long as these three are true, then the age is still present. Remember we said the church occupies the last days of this present age. So we've only seen the very last piece of it. It's been going on before that. So we want to get to the age of the Gentiles conversation, and we want to know what will stop the age of the Gentiles, and it will simply be the reversal of three factors that began it, the three things we learned last time, which was that the age of the Gentiles is Israel subjugated to Gentile powers, and that the Gentile powers would subjugate Israel, they would scatter the people, and they would trample Jerusalem. So you have Three things Israel being subjugated to Gentiles, Israel being scattered outside her land, Israel's capital city being trampled, being controlled by Gentile powers. Those things define the age. When the age began, it's because Nebuchadnezzar, as you remember, brought those three things into existence. And until all three are reversed, the age exists. We have to reverse all three. And we began looking at world powers that fit that definition, we found four world powers that fit these four requirements for the age of the Gentiles. And Daniel 2 gave us an overview of these four. And you remember it was a statue that he used, uh, that God used in a dream, that symbolically represented the age of the Gentiles. This is still review, and we're finishing up with the review here. So we have a statue, and in this statue, there were four parts to the statue, and each of these parts represents one of the four kingdoms that were said to be coming during the age of the Gentiles, right? The last thing we see in the dream is a rock that falls from heaven, uncut by human hands. That rock destroys the statue, and as it falls at the feet, which represents the end of the timeline, it establishes a new kingdom, a mountain that, uh, this new kingdom is a mountain eventually that fills the whole earth. All of that picturing Jesus falling to finish the age of the Gentiles and establish a Jewish kingdom, now if you haven't been here, there's, you're already lost. And that's, that, was un, that was expected, all right? You can't catch up in 10 minutes. But you can go back online and catch up. But here's what we just realized through that chapter of Daniel. That as long as we're waiting for Christ, we're gonna be in a time of Gentile domination over Israel. And what will fix that is not peace in the Middle East or any political solution. What fixes that is Jesus' return because God has intended that his people be under subjugation until that moment. At his second coming, he puts a kingdom in place that is a Jewish kingdom. And as a result, it fixes all three elements that define the age of the Gentiles. No longer is Israel going to be subjugated to Gentiles. They're gonna be the chief nation on the earth. No longer is Israel gonna be scattered outside their land. All living Jews will be in their land. And thirdly, no longer will the city of Jerusalem be trampled by any Gentiles, it'll be the home of Jesus. So those three things get fixed because Jesus fixes them. Until then, we're waiting. We're in the age of the Gentiles. And that age goes until the second coming of Christ. So we learn this from Daniel 2, and this is where we now move to new material. In Daniel 2, we learn that there's an age. The age is represented by a statue. It's four Gentile world powers. They become increasingly strong but less majestic. They... Uh, will last until Christ's second coming. At the second coming, he puts an end to the age of the Gentiles and the kingdom will then come to earth as a result, ending the age of the Gentiles. All right, now, what we need to do now is build a layer on top of that understanding. That's where we go tonight. Daniel seven is the chapter that puts us a step closer to understanding why this is important. That in other words, we know now that there is this period of history. We know that it will have this focus and this pattern, and we've seen it play out in history already. But we also know that the fourth kingdom was the one that really mattered because it was the one that brings us to Jesus. And we know it's also the one we're in today. So it's the one that clearly has our attention, and as it turns out, it's the one that should have your attention because it's the one that is of focus in all of these prophecies, especially chapter 7. So let's go to chapter 7 for a moment. In chapter 7 we read Daniel says I was looking in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another the first was like a lion and had wings of an eagle i kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man a human mind also was given to it and behold another beast the second one resembling a bear and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth and thus they said to it arise devour much meat After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. All right, now, because we have Daniel 2, we can summarize what we're studying here in Daniel 7. That is, I don't have to go through it in the same way we would have gone through Daniel 2, because we know we're looking at the same thing. At least you know that, because I'm telling you that. But it becomes self-evident very quickly. All right, so instead of a statue this time in terms of a timeline, the statue gave us a a timeline. They were all connected to one another and they flowed from head to toe, right? Now we have four beasts. They're not connected in any way, so we don't have a timeline this time. What we're looking at now is the nature of these kingdoms, and the animals give us a little more detail about the nature of the kingdom. And they line up neatly with our earlier chapter. First, you start with a lion, lion with wings, and the head of gold in the statue would be the corresponding piece to this one. So in Daniel 2, it was a head of gold. In Daniel 7, now it's the lion with wings. In the head of gold, we know it was Nebuchadnezzar, personifying Babylon, and here again, that would mean this should be the symbol that symbolizes the first kingdom, Babylon. Is there any way to know that, to confirm that? Well, as it turns out, the national symbol of ancient Babylon was a lion with wings. (laughs) And to see proof of that, in ancient Babylon, archaeologists have unearthed this statue, which is of a lion, and the wings were there, but they've been broken off. That is Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. By the way, as you look at the connection between two and seven and the historical record, uh, you'll have a choice to make. Either this is the the most incredible coincidence in all of human history— or God can give you things in advance in prophecy, right? Because that's what he's doing here. All right, moving on. Uh, by the way, this lion in the, in the dream is said to stand on two feet, and then it was given a mind like a man, which is an interesting detail. We'll come back to that later. It is, it is significant. Moving on, the bear. The bear has uh, got three ribs in its mouth. Uh, it's obviously a picture then of the Medo-Persian Empire since that's the second one in our list. And... If we're going to confirm that that's in fact the case, then we would ask, well, what about this bear might suggest that it was in fact the Medo-Persians? Well, the bear is standing on one side, it's lopsided. That would correspond to the fact that the Persians were the far greater power in, the, in this union than the Medes were. It was a very dis, uh, or unequal union. You had much more power with the Persians than with the Medes. And then you have the three ribs, which represent the various kingdoms that the Medo-Persian empire conquered on its rise to power. By its zenith, it had conquered Lydia, Babylonia, and Egypt, which are three ribs. So that's, again, either a coincidence or God is telling us something. I'll let you guess which one I think. And then finally, the third animal, finally for this section, the third animal, the Greek empire, uh, why would it be represented by a leopard, and why four wings, four heads? Well, you remember some of the history from last time, right? First of all, uh, a leopard represents the absurd speed of the Greek conquest. In fact, the Greek conquest wasn't just as fast as a leopard. It was fast as a leopard that could fly. So it's an incredibly quick-moving army. And then four heads and four wings would reflect the fact that it broke into four pieces after Alexander the Great died. So here again, details that line up perfectly. All right, but those came and went pretty quickly in this chapter. You got 28 verses in chapter seven, and we're only at, what, verse six? And we're already moving on into the next kingdom. So you get a sense right up front which of these four matters, because it's the one that gets all the press. Okay? And that takes us to the next section. Verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. All right, now, like Daniel 2, the fourth beast breaks the pattern. If you remember in Daniel 2, we had Homogeneous, monolithic empires. And then we get to number four, and Daniel says, This one's different. It's going to break up all the previous into pieces. And so, what we learned in Daniel 2 was that once you get to the fourth kingdom, you're no longer looking for one entity under one name. Yes, it, it began that way with Rome, but it didn't stay that way for very long. And we've gone now 2,000 years, and it hasn't been one name for most of that time. And that's to be expected. So you're not looking for a name, you're not trying to peg it on one entity, don't even bother trying. Daniel's told us that's not what you're looking for. It is a collection of things that collectively accomplish the means of the age of the Gentiles. Collectively, they accomplish those same three purposes with respect to Israel, okay? And by the way, it doesn't just include the European or Middle Eastern areas. Uh, As Daniel says here, this fourth kingdom devours the whole earth. So, in time, what was just Europe became North America and South America, and then eventually Australia. And so, as people moved and migrated, what was the kingdom that occupied the world known at that time has become a kingdom of the world, but it's still in pieces. And collectively, it accomplishes what God has intended. The age of the Gentiles is not about a certain kingdom or four kingdoms, it's about Israel, it's about Israel not having prominence. And God is achieving that now in this last period through a collective alliance of a world against Israel in one form or another. The fourth beast follows that pattern. Keep in mind, the first three were all very neat and easy to understand, relatively speaking. I mean, they're not animals you'll find out in the woods. Well, the bear, I guess you could. But not the lion, not the leopard, not with wings. And yet, they're very identifiable. Lions, bears, leopards. He gets to the fourth one And the fourth one is apparently so different, dreadful, and terrifying, he doesn't even bother making a comparison. Uh, A comparison escapes him here because there is no comparison. This beast doesn't have any relative animal in the kingdom. So we're going to put this on instead, just as an example. And this fourth beast, Daniel says, crushes and breaks down all the previous. Same language as Daniel 2. Again, confirming that in the fourth kingdom, we don't try to look for a single name. We understand that this is different. And in the case of this fourth one, we get additional detail that adds to what we learned in the second chapter of Daniel. So we know that it's going to break down, like it said back in Daniel 2. Daniel 7 says that uh, he desires to know the exact meaning of this beast. And he says it's gonna be one that uh, breaks down, destroys, crushes, tramples, exactly like what we saw with Rome and Europe in earlier times back in chapter two of Daniel. All right, now we get to the new stuff. And just as Rome became Europe and onward, eventually what we have today transitions into something new. And it's represented by horns, okay? So what we're saying is this, just as Rome became scattered into pieces and then that became a world of nations and ultimately what we have today, 200 something plus nations out there, that is relatively recent. We take it as norm, that's all we've ever known, right? Well, don't get used to it. What has been in the past will come back again in the future, and uh, 200 and something nations is an extreme exception to the rule of what mankind has known throughout its history. The norm is a few kingdoms, and even as few as one at times. And in the end, Daniel says, or according to what we just read, there will be 10. There will be 10 horns, we're told, and out of these 10, an 11th will emerge, we're told, And that 11th has, at one point he says, eyes and a mouth. Now I'm assuming it's quite a bit more menacing than that. That's just to see if you're awake. And Daniel says the eyes and this 11th will have eyes in the mouth of a man. In other words, the 11th is personified. The last time we saw a creature personified was the lion when it received the mind of a man and stood on fire his hind legs. Now we also remember from Daniel 2 that Nebuchadnezzar was the only man within all of these kingdoms that we've talked about, the only one who would receive power to rule the entire earth. These kingdoms have always had dominant power, but only one of the the kings was ever said to have complete rule of the earth. And that was also the one who was personified in the case of the lion. What we're learning is this, the one that comes at the end is like the one that comes in the beginning. The one that came in the beginning had a conquering ability for the whole of the earth, and the one that comes at the end will as well. And that is an intentional connection. And in terms of his power, he gains it by getting rid of three in that 10. So he's not among the original 10, but before he's done, he has seven of the 10. Um, My guess is once the other seven saw what he did to the first three, they said, hey, we're on your side. And then he has their control and he moves forward in that control. All right, so that's the horns. Now, before we look at um, any more deeply this one extra horn, we need to understand what Daniel is told about the end of the age. Because remember, in the case of Daniel 2, we heard about the stone falling that crushed the statue. What's the equivalent in Daniel chapter seven? Well, it comes in verse nine. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up And the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. His wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books open. All right, so in this case, we don't have a dramatic event in terms of a, a rock or an animal. We just hear of the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne ruling in judgment, which is clearly a reference to God, and we're not even sure exactly which member of the Godhead, if you will, but based on Daniel 2, we would say this is Christ's ruling. So now Daniel gives a request for an interpretation for the dream that he just received, so we lean heavily on what he hears for our own interpretation, but we see where it's going. Let's get the additional detail. So in Daniel chapter 7, verse 20, we hear this, He wants to know the meaning of the 10 horns that were on the head of the beast and of that 11th horn that came up before which three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its uh, associates. And then he says, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. All right, now here's detail we did not get in the statue. And here's the reason, the chief reason why Daniel 7 exists. At the end of the statue, remember, we had 10. But in the case of the statue, it was 10 toes, right? And they're at the end. So we know they're at the last thing of the age of the Gentiles. The age of the Gentiles ends with 10, okay? Now we're seeing confirmation of that in the fourth beast, And with it, elaboration on what that 10 means. In the case of the statue, we never heard. But in the case of Daniel 7, now we get to understand what it means. And he starts by asking this question. I want to know about these 10 horns, because clearly they're the focus on that fourth animal. And I also want to understand what about this 11th horn, because he comes up and he starts to do some pretty nasty things, and that starts to concern Daniel more than anything. All right? So now we go on to see the interpretation. Daniel 7, 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Before we go any further, we're seeing further confirmation that we're on the right track. These are the same things we saw in Daniel 2. They're all kingdoms. And he says, which will be different from all the other kingdoms? Okay, so the first three must also be kingdoms. Further confirmation. And the fourth one will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom... 10 kings will arise. So there's your confirmation that the horns are leaders, they're kings. And then he says, and another will arise after them, the 11th, of course, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time, But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. All right, so again, we're moving quickly because you heard Daniel 2. So you should be, if you took notes or if you know Daniel 2 by heart, you already see the lining up of all of these details, right? right. you have a, another period of fracturing and dividing the world into pieces. And those to pieces will devour the whole earth, as we already heard. And eventually, they'll unite into a structure of some kind in which there are 10 kings. Is this one kingdom with 10 kings ruling by taking pieces of it? Or is it 10 separate kingdoms? That is unclear. It doesn't really matter. The point is, we're down to 10 rulers at the end of the world. And then at some point, you have an th- 11th ruler coming on the scene. He subdues three, he takes control over the other seven, and he rules, it says, for a time's time and half a time. Now, that's an obscure reference to time, and it's one of only two places in the Bible you find it. Here, and I'll give you one guess, at which other book? Re- Revelation, right? And it's that connection among many between the two that make it clear that these two are really part one and part two of a story, and so you have to have both parts. The time reference, time, times, and half a time, would be literally impossible to interpret conclusively if it weren't for Revelation. Revelation actually tells you what that means. We know it because of Revelation. Revelation compares that phrase, time, times, and half a time, to two other measurements. In days, at one point, and in months, at another point. Always the same length of time, three and a half years. So then we come to get the decoder ring for three, for what uh, time, times, and half a time means. It's time, times, and half a time. Can't make my finger go down halfway. Three and a half. So the lesson you're learning is that there'll be 10 for some period of time, undefined, and then there'll be an 11th come on the scene, and over some short period of time, he gains control. Once he has control, he's in control for three and a half years, that's it. So this 11th horn, this world leader, this guy that ends the age, has three and a half years in which he is numero uno. He is the big cheese. So the three and a half years ends with his unseating, his destruction, and it comes as a result of Christ's return. And clearly that makes sense. Christ comes back and gains all power. So whoever had it isn't going to have it after Jesus comes back. So that's what we just learned. We don't have names for these people. You might already have them in your mind, of course, but that comes later. What we know right now is that this age has this cataclysmic, climactic end in which something has to happen to our present world to bring us to a point where geopolitically it is radically different than it is today. And 10 world leaders have to emerge. From those 10, finally another shows up, which ends the age. So let me summarize this with a picture. It's not that It shouldn't be Too hard to understand even still, but pictures are helpful, right? So we get into the fourth kingdom with Rome, but Rome is not what we keep very long. We end up with this east-west monolithic Roman empire being divided and fractured in pieces, and then I came up with the name imperialistic democratic alliances, but whatever you want to call it, it's the world today. And that world today continues for a time until at such point you get 10 kings near the very end of this period. And as we zoom in on those 10 kings... There's a point before the end in which a new guy shows up and at first, he's not a power center. He's not one of the 10. He's sort of there but not in charge. But something happens and in what happens, he's able to move three out of the way and what's left is him and the rest of the guys running the place for three and a half years until the rock and once the return of Christ happens, then we end up with the mountain that fills the whole earth. All right, so this is very much in alignment with what we already heard in Daniel chapter two. And I went through it because what you learned here in Daniel seven and what you didn't have from Daniel two is that extra element about the 10 kings at the end. And there's some important consequences in what we just learned. That is, there are some important details there that you need to remember. First of all, you need to remember that we have 10 before we have the 11th. The 11th cannot appear until we have 10. 10. Now, if you know where we're going with the 11th, that is, if you know who that's referring to, and again, we'll talk about it later, then you can debunk anyone who might come along now and tell you that they think they know who the 11th is in our world today. They can't know because we don't have 10. And until there's 10, no 11th emerges. So we are along, I would argue, just because of how I would assume geopolitics is gonna work, I assume it's going to take some time to get to the 10 from where we are now. And so, I mean, it's not going to happen tomorrow. I mean, not that I can see and not the day after that. So my point is, we're not in a position at this point to be thinking about these events. They they aren't on the brink of happening because there's a lot that has to happen before they could happen. Okay. What that also tells you, among other things, is that the second coming of Christ is not imminent. It can't be. It awaits on some things. And those things aren't present. I can say definitively, as I stand here right now, Jesus is not coming back today in his second coming. And he's not going to come back tomorrow. He's probably not going to come back anytime real soon. Not for his second coming. Now, we know the Bible talks about an imminent return of Christ. So that we have a dilemma here, which we'll solve next week. <laughs> but in the meantime, let me lay all this, let me just do a little summary of Daniel 7. Daniel 7 did a number of things for us, it confirmed that Daniel 2. Uh, was a good interpretation because the two now line up. Anytime, by the way, that you can go to another passage of scripture, find another passage that aligns with your interpretation of, a, of another passage somewhere else, the two align in your interpretation, that is good confirmation. That makes you feel better that you're on the right track. Uh, it emphasized the importance of the fourth kingdom, of course. It emphasized how it ends with the leadership that we just talked about, the 10 turning into seven plus one. And it confirms that the end of the age, the toes from Daniel 2, in other words, represent this change in leadership right at the very end. I mean, think of it this way. As long as a toe is to the rest of the body, so is this period of history to the whole of the age of the Gentiles. It's just gonna be at the very end, okay? All right, now, as we think about this scenario, the age of the Gentiles, let me put a map or a a, a picture together. I'm gonna use a lot of pictures in this course. And my style of teaching in this class is to use pictures to build a story that helps you remember the bits and pieces. So the graphics will build. Things that we start with will still be around weeks and months from now with new stuff attached to it, okay? And that helps you begin to see how what Scripture tells us from the beginning to the end. is a big story building to what we learn in Revelation. So let's start with some things we already have and continue adding to it. So we have the age of the Gentiles, a period of history that we're still a part of. It started with Nebuchadnezzar. He was the first guy who accomplished the three things that Jesus said defines the age. And when he conquered Jerusalem and conquered Judah and scattered the people of Israel, he accomplished those things. And then after him came the next kingdom, Medo-Persia. And then after that, the Greek empire. And you notice I've got both the statue and the animals up there just as reference then we get into the fourth kingdom, very different from the others, right? Not at all like the ones we studied before. And then at the very end, and I put a little red and white hash mark up there to signify the very end, that's when all the really interesting stuff starts to happen. That's when we get down to 10 liters, and then one liter, and then all the rest, okay? It's some period of time we don't have defined just yet. And then, of course, Jesus shows up at the end. Now, because so much of this is past history, I can put some dates to it, which I didn't get from Daniel. So we can start to put ourselves in there. We know where we showed up on that timeline, the church age, and that's not necessarily meant to represent how much of the fourth kingdom we will occupy. We'll talk more about that in a minute. I'm just sticking it there for now. And the dates. Those are the dates in which those transitions happened. And the way you pick those dates, by the way, is on the same basis that we define the age. When did they conquer Jerusalem? That's what those dates mean because that's effectively when they took the place of the prior kingdom in being the Gentile in charge over Israel. Okay? So that's the age of the Gentiles. Now, we would love to know, wouldn't we, this. Wouldn't you love to know, well, for example, some of the questions that you might have right now. How long does this thing last relative to this thing? Does it go all the way to the end? Does it stop before we get to the, bad, to, to the red and white hash mark? Does it go somewhere in the middle of it? Those are the questions that start to really dominate debate within the church. It's such a shame that there is a debate, frankly, because the answers are so painfully and plainly obvious. I say plainfully because it's the two put together. Um, That when we're done with this class, you not only will be able to explain it well to anyone who asks, but you will be in amazement that we even have disagreements. Because it's, and I won't have to, it's not about me convincing you, trust me. (laughs) You will see it on the page and you'll be like, obvious, Steve, obvious. And I'll say, yeah, it's obvious because of the way scripture lays it together. You just have to put all the pieces in place. All right, so we would love to know how we fit into this. Because clearly this has been going on a lot longer than we've been around. And it's about Israel, it's not about us. So we sort of seem like the group crashing the party. We've kind of come into the middle of something. But God doesn't do anything randomly, so the question becomes why are we involved at all? Why are we in this whole thing? And so that's our next question. That is, we want to start to understand, if we look at the church age for a second, how does the church age relate to what we just learned about the age of the Gentiles in terms of time? In terms of time. Let's start by overlaying the chapters of Revelation on this chart again. I think we did this once before, right? So Daniel saw what he saw at the end of the first century. That's right about the end of the first period of the church age, right? And then the things that are, chapters two and three, well, that's the whole of the church age. we said that. And then, by definition, in the book of Revelation, you get to things after the church when you get into chapter 4 because the church is in chapters 2 and 3 only. Once you leave chapter 3 and go into chapter 4, by definition, you are in the things after these things, these things being the church things. So chapters 4 and onward are everything after the church. And the age of the Gentiles is the whole of it. So let's look at this little piece right here for the next 2 weeks for the next tonight and the next week we need to focus in on that little piece because once we get into 4 and onward the church is in the rearview mirror and that would need to be then addressed how did we get there why are we out of the picture what's coming next that that transition becomes a key conversation for the next 2 weeks all right and to do that guess where we get to go back to daniel Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is the book, uh, chapter of of Daniel, that gives us the timeline for the events we just studied, and in particular, a timeline that lets us put the church in the proper perspective, okay? So we're going to go to Daniel chapter 9 next, verse 1. And this is a great story. All of the chapters we've studied really have a story element to them, but this one in particular, and I love this one. Verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asusurus of Midian descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, here's the story. Daniel's in the first year, he says, of Darius of Midian descent. Now, he's a Mede. Darius is a Mede. So Ding, 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 ding. Where are we in history then? We're in the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel has lived through the entirety of the Babylonian Empire from the time he was captured. And he is now in the year of Darius. Darius is the first king of the Medo-Empire at that time, the Medo-Persian Empire. So that means the Babylonian Empire has fallen to the Medo-Persians. That happened 69 years after the nation of Israel was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar so Daniel is now an old man and he has lived most of his adult life all of his adult life most of his life in Babylon and it says on this particular day he's reading in the books which means the books of Scripture and among the books of Scripture he was reading in that day was the book of Jeremiah And it's really interesting to me to see the prophet Daniel reading the prophet Jeremiah on the one hand it makes it clear that everyone benefits from reading Scripture I mean, look, if Daniel needed to read the Bible, you do too. Uh, Secondly, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel. They lived at the same time. Most historians would tell you that Jeremiah was probably gone by now, certainly, but still, when he wrote the book, Daniel was writing his book, which then goes to show you how quickly Scripture is understood to be inspired. It does not take thousands of years for someone to look back later and say it was inspired. Peter, as you may remember in his second letter, he refers to Paul's writings in chapter three as inspired scripture, and they were both alive at that point. So Peter recognized Paul as an inspired author of scripture while they were both alive, and here you see Daniel doing the same for Jeremiah. Don't let anybody tell you that it's some thousands of years later that people decide what's scripture. That is complete nonsense. Scripture is self-evident from the moment it shows up on earth, God does not need us to tell him what is scripture. It is self-evident to humanity from the moment it appears. And it is immediately kept as such, and that's why it's preserved as such. Okay? You can have confidence in this word. So Daniel is reading in the books, and he's reading Jeremiah's writing. And as he reads Jeremiah, he makes a mistake. He makes a mistake in interpretation. A third moment of encouragement for you. If Daniel can misinterpret scripture, get used to doing it. It's going to happen. But there's a corollary here. As Daniel misinterprets the scripture, God intervenes to make sure that he gets it right. And although we won't get our intervention the same way, you will get an intervention. You just gotta be ready for it. You see, he got it through a somewhat miraculous, supernatural moment. You might get it from your neighbor or your wife or your pastor or your friend. You know, Just because we don't glow doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention. Maybe God's trying to say something to you, right? I mean, we all have correction coming somehow. God will give us interpretive help if we're willing to receive it, okay? Meanwhile, back to the main story. Here's what he does wrong. Here's what Daniel's misinterpretation is. He read in Jeremiah that the number of the years appointed for the completion of Jerusalem's desolation was 70 years. Here's what he was reading. Let's go to Jeremiah 25 for a second. Here's what he was actually reading. In Jeremiah 25, Israel's told, the whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and, and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So remember, Nebuchadnezzar, when he came in originally and finished attacking his three times, he left nothing back. I mean, there was no wall, there was no city, there was no temple, the people were all gone. And so it was truly a desolation following Nebuchadnezzar's attack. Jeremiah tells the nation of Israel that that desolation was to last 70 years for them. And Daniel, you know, when Daniel's sitting there in the 69th year, and he's reading Jeremiah and he's reading Jeremiah 25 and he sees this it must have triggered in his mind this this memory that if Dan, if I'm supposed to be here 69 or 70 years and Jeremiah is saying 70 years is at the end uh, of this time outside the land we must be coming up on that moment right the numbers are are obvious and he saw Medo-Persia the Medo-Persians taking over the land conquering Babylon just like Jer- uh, Jeremiah said Here's Jeremiah writing long before it happened, predicting exactly how long it would be before the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, and they did it. I mean, Scripture is, is just amazing that people ever doubt it, right? And there was something else that probably came into Daniel's mind. You notice it said he was reading in the books. Not just the book, but the books. He wasn't just reading Jeremiah. When he read Jeremiah, this is probably what also popped into his mind. He probably looked... Leviticus 26, because Leviticus 26 is where the Lord tells Israel to expect this penalty. Leviticus 26.32 says, I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over you. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. And then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths, all the days of the desolation. While you are in your enemy's land, the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Here's what the connection is. In the law... Israel had been told they could farm their land six years, and then on the seventh year, they weren't to farm it. They were to leave it alone, let it lay fallow for the good of the land, call it a Sabbath for the land, and they'd pick it up again in the eighth year. And then to make sure they had food, God gave them a double harvest every sixth year. So they'd have extra food every sixth year. They didn't have to work on the seventh year. Now you would think that would be a great incentive to just you know, chill out on the seventh year. Less work, right? Except that the Jews figured out if they farmed all seven years then they got not only the double portion in the sixth year, but they also got a portion in the seventh year, and they just kept doing that. And so in disobedience to the law of God, they kept farming all seven years. And that went on for a long time, a long time. For 490 years they did that. Is God not long-suffering? Right. That 490 years added up to 70 land Sabbaths that were missed over the course of 490 years. So the Lord promises in Leviticus 26 that if that happened, and of course he says it because he knew it would happen, that he would then put them outside their land for the 70 years as a penalty, and so as to allow the land to recover those 70 years of rest that it was owed, so to speak. And so the land, it says in verse 34, will enjoy its 70 years, of rest, which is uh, sort of a backhanded way of saying you won't be enjoying that because you'll be outside the land in your enemy's land. So Daniel reads Jeremiah 25 in my in my estimation. He reads Leviticus 26, the books. He puts two and two together, and he concludes that the 70 years they've now spent outside the land of Israel and in the land of Babylon was the appointed time. For their penalty, having violated the law, and now that the 70 years was about to end, he's convinced that his people were about to be set free and allowed to return to the land. Now, all of that is correct. That is what was about to happen. In a couple of years from this moment, Darius is gonna be replaced by the next king, which is Cyrus. And Cyrus is gonna issue a decree that will allow Israel to return to her land. And that will have been in the 71st year after they spent 70 years outside the land. Now, Jeremiah specified that the land would rest for 70 years, but Daniel assumed too much about what was going on. And here's what he assumed wrong. He specifically assumed that the 70 years was not just for the land Sabbath. He assumed that was the time designated for the entire age of Gentiles. He assumed that the statue and the beasts, for that matter, were pictures of the 70 years. Not the longer period that we now know it to be, so he was here he is in the sixty ninth year expecting the end of the age to end. so what do you think that means he 's also expecting he 's expecting a kingdom to come he 's literally expecting the messiah 's arrival and the kingdom for Israel to come right around the corner and to demonstrate that I know this is what was on Daniel's mind. Let me just just put a picture up here for a moment. This is back to our picture. This is the picture of that period that we now know as the age of the Gentiles. And it starts with 70 years designated strictly for a land Sabbath, all right? Now, how do I know that Daniel's assuming that this here represents the end of this? Well, because of what he does next. By the way, we know the church takes up that whole period. We'll come back to that. Daniel 9, 3 rather. He says, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. And it goes on. And goes on for a while. Now, why does Daniel launch into this long confessional prayer on behalf of the nation of Israel at this point? Well, the reason is because of something that he knows is written also in Leviticus 26, just a little further down from what I read for you earlier. Look what he would have seen in Leviticus 26. In Leviticus 26, it says, if they, meaning Israel, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, and I jump to 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. Now here's what's going on. In Leviticus 26, the Lord tells Israel that they have to keep the law perfectly, 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 That is, every man, woman, and child in the nation must keep every single law without even a single exception. If they do that, they get the blessings of the Old Covenant. And those blessings are essentially the blessings of having the kingdom. But if they fail to do that, he says, I'm going to bring a bunch of curses against you. And those curses have the effect of holding Israel under judgment. But then the Lord says in verse 40, if the nation should turn and confess their sin, but not just their own personal sin, but actually confess their forefathers' sin in something they did against God, acting in hostility against God, then what God would do in response to that confessional prayer is he would remember another covenant. He would remember the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant that promises Israel the kingdom. So here's what we're saying. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. God is going to give Israel the kingdom based on what he told them in that covenant without them doing anything. But now what we're learning is the Old Covenant sets the timing of that fulfillment. The Old Covenant determines when God will keep that promise. And when will it happen? When Israel confesses two things, their own iniquity, and secondly, an action that their forefathers took against God, which we find out later is in reference to their crucifixion of Jesus. When Israel as a nation confesses their own sin and acknowledges that they put Jesus on a cross, they killed their own Messiah, then God says, at that moment, I will remember my covenant to Abraham. And by remember, it's not to say he forgot it. It's another way of saying, I will put it into effect. So in putting it into effect at that moment, God is not putting a condition on Israel's behavior so much as he is setting the timing. He's telling us what set of circumstances will lead to it. We'll cover that much later in the book of Revelation because it becomes a key moment in our study. But for now, put yourself in Daniel's mindset. He thinks 70 years is all that's required for Israel to get to the end of the age. He thinks that at the end, that he's a year away from the Messiah coming. And he understands out of Leviticus 26 that in order for that covenant to be fulfilled, there has to be a national confession. And so on behalf of his nation, he starts praying. And you notice he says, I'm praying, uh, confessing my sins, our sins, confessing Israel's sins, not just his own. But he's wrong. Right idea, wrong timing. So here's where God corrects him, and he does so through an angel named Gabriel. Verse 20, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, and notice this, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of God. Now, what is the holy mountain of God? That's a phrase in in Jewish thinking that means the kingdom. So he says, I'm praying in behalf of the kingdom with an eye toward bringing it into existence, an eye toward ushering it in. He's trying to help the process along here, okay? While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering, and he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, and this is how I imagine it went, oh, Daniel. (laughs) I have now come to give you insight with understanding. And from there, he gets a correction. Um, verse 23, he goes on, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. I love that line, because it says, at the beginning, I was dispatched. So up in heaven, as soon as he starts praying this prayer, God in heaven's like, oh, he's way off. Gabriel, get down there. We got to stop this guy. He's way ahead of script because that's what he's doing. I mean, he's, he's, he's gone off thinking he's over here, and God's saying, oh my gosh, come on, go down there. Let's deal with this. And he sends Gabriel down, and he says, to I'm going to give you insight with understanding. Another great phrase. Everyone thinks they have insight, but not everyone's got understanding. And so insight is, is, I guess, the Bible's way of saying you have an opinion, but I need you to have one with understanding, he says. That's the key. And then he begins to give him the correction. All right, so that's what our focus as we finish here. What is the correction? And here's the correction he's told. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. All right, so Gabriel tells Daniel that 70 weeks have been appointed for Daniel's people, not merely 70 years. All right, but that can't be right because 70 weeks is a lot less, not the extra time we're looking for, right? So we have to understand what what he's saying here. Weeks, first of all. All right, so weeks in our Bible is actually a very poor English translation. Some of you may have a better one in your Bible. It may say sevens in your Bible. And if it does, you have a better Bible than I do because the word in Hebrew is Shabbat. Shabbat is the word for seven. It should be translated 77s. So what Daniel heard is 77s are appointed 490 are appointed now the question is 77 490 of what well it's not hard to understand what that 490 is because we know it just cannot be some of these options because it would just make the problem worse right and furthermore we already know how the counting has been done we know for example that we have the land sabbath 70 years and we know we're going to have years and years of time for the coming kingdoms right so there's really only one conclusion here we're looking at years that's the longest period we could be looking at that makes any sense. So Daniel says gonna, or Gabriel says you're going to have 490 years for the age of the Gentiles from that point forward, not 400, not uh, uh, one more year or whatever Daniel thought it was. But even that poses an issue, right? Because 490 years is long since passed. We're well beyond that. And yet we haven't seen Jesus come back yet. So it seems to be there's this conundrum. We, we know we're still in the age of the Gentiles because we haven't seen what w- was said to ha- happen at the end yet. We haven't seen 10 world leaders, right? We haven't seen one guy rule the world. But on the other hand, that number doesn't fit with the time that it's been. And given how specific and how pr- precise all of the prophecy has been up to this point, we can't expect that it's going to be that off. So let's see if we can find how this works. And to do this, you need to follow carefully with what I'm doing on the slides. All right, so Daniel begins to get a specific roadmap on how to count because the counting of the 490 is a bit unorthodox. It starts off simple enough. We hear in verse 25, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress, Now, what I'm gonna do is we're gonna stop from just reading it. We're gonna break it apart because as you break it apart, you begin to see how the language is meant to be understood. There are mile markers here being given for how we chart the 490. Starting with, he says, there will be, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, seven weeks. Now, we know these weeks are sevens of years, so we're saying seven sevens of years. So a decree will be issued. We know Cyrus did that. We already said this. So in a very short time following this vision, Cyrus did exactly what Daniel was told to look for. A decree was issued, and then it would be, it says, seven weeks until the restoration of the temple. And then to confirm that, he puts another mile marker at the end. He says, the walls will be finished even in times of distress. So the finishing of the walls marks the end. And sure enough, if you look at the history and the scripture, Nehemiah's finishing of the walls happened 49 years after the the, the decree of Cyrus. Okay? Then we get to the next mile marker. He says, and these are interwoven, but he says, until Messiah the Prince, there will be 62 weeks picking up from where the previous one ended. They're meant to be connected to each other. The language makes that clear. You see in the language, until and it will be, and so on. So there is this connection of events. You have the next mile marker being when Messiah will be cut off, which we know refers to Jesus' crucifixion. So you have these two periods, 62 weeks, uh, seven—sorry, uh, 49 years, which is seven sevens, followed by 62 uh, sevens, which is another 434 years. You put the two together, and of course you got four hundred. In 83 years, and 69 of our 77s already by the time Jesus is crucified. Well, he got one seven left over. So, where's that final seven? All right, well, we got one more verse. And in, let's see if I'm looking at my text here right, verse 27, he says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. All right, so now we have this next line. He says then," or he says, "And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week." All right. So there's our next mile marker. The problem, though, is that this mile marker is not connected to anything in the prior block. There's nothing in the language that says, start counting this when Messiah is cut off. It just jumps out from nowhere. The final seven begins, it says, with a covenant. Well, not the covenant of Jesus. This is a covenant that's different. It's one made with many. And there is no connecting word in the language. So that means that the final seven happens at some unknown moment, and as a result, it implies a break or a pause in the counting. And that makes sense because we know there have been a lot more years than 490. And yet we know we haven't reached the end. So the only way mathematically that you can still be counting and yet only have seven left is that the count has some unspoken period in the middle that's not included in the 490. And that's where we are right now. And that period will break when a signing of a covenant happens between the one and the many. Uh, who is the one? Who is the many? Well, start with the many, the many has to be Israel because the effect of the covenant is that it opens up the opportunity for grain offerings and sacrifice there 's only one community of people on earth who would still want to do that, and that is the Jewish people and so and given that this is a Jewish prophet writing to a Jewish people, it makes sense he 's talking about what happens to Israel. They get a covenant to do what they want to do, so to sp- most of them who 's the one that allows them to do it well If you look at the one, it's not specified, but it has to be someone Daniel already knows, otherwise it would have been. And since this is happening at the end of the age, remember, we're talking about the last seven. We're talking about the end of the 490 at that point. We're talking about right before Jesus comes back. Is there a one that's in charge back in that time? Well, we just heard there would be, the 11th horn, right? So it doesn't take a leap of logic to say that if I'm at the end and there is a one and Daniel's supposed to know who this one is, it's probably the one that's already been revealed to him. So we conclude it's the 11th horn. And so this scene must include, in of course three and a half years would be halfway through the seven. So we start to see the timelines making sense there as well. All right, so we have a covenant struck with Israel somewhere in that last seven, at the beginning of the last seven, which allows Israel to begin doing what it wants. But then we also hear that midway through the seven, you notice this, in the middle of the week, There will be a stop in the sacrifice. Seems awful coincidental that at the middle of the week, that's also the three and a half year point. That's also times, times, and half a time. That's also the moment that this 11th horn gains power. You start to see a moment there that apparently has a lot of significance. Okay? Where's the church? Well, in this drawing, where's the church? Right, I mean, you start to think, well, gee, that pause has some purpose, right? Paul actually tells us uh, I'm sorry, and put the, the complete destruction, by the way, is the final mile marker, because that's how the age ends. That pause now has to have some purpose. And Paul gives us the, the purpose. We take the church, and we say the church now fits somewhere in there, and Paul says, what then, Israel, what Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Israel, by God's decree, was set aside for a time, apart from a remnant, and in its place, he says this, They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Well, may it never be. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous, to make Israel jealous. And he ends by saying, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening, that's this hardening he just talked about, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Or we could rephrase that, until the completeness of the age of the Gentiles. until the completeness of the period of Gentiles, specifically talking about the church. So what he just said is, is, this whole plan above is about Israel. It's about bringing Israel to a conclusion that God has ordained for his people. But there's a pause inserted into that period of work specifically for the church to occupy, a period in which Gentiles will get preference instead of Jews for the sake of the gospel. And it is going to continue until the fullness, or that word is the complete number, of Gentiles is found by God as he appoints. Once that period has met its purpose and is complete, then the age has moved back to the point of Israel's focus, and that is that last seven for Israel. So let's put these pictures together. So we have, um, you'll find something interesting here that you may not have seen before, but you, you see it now from the text clearly. How long is the age of the Gentiles? It's not 490 years. It's much longer because of the pause. But even the counting in Daniel is not just 490. It's how many? It's the 70 plus 490. 490. They had 70 years they had to sit in the land for the land Sabbaths, outside the land for the land Sabbaths. Then that's when Daniel thought they were done, but that's when the angel came and said, no, no, you got 490 more. So they effectively had 10 sevens for the period that the land needed to rest, and that was for a specific purpose. That was for the purpose of letting the land rest. The purpose of the next 490 years, or 70 sevens, is a different purpose. It's a different purpose because the land Sabbath was already met. That's why Israel comes back after the 70 years, but it doesn't end the age of the Gentiles because one purpose was met while another one is ongoing. And now we're learning that the church age actually fills that space up until the point at which the attention of God shifts back from the Gentiles to Israel and to that last seven that he's appointed for Israel. And the decree that was issued to let Israel return and rebuild the city and and, uh, begin this countdown was issued, just as we said, just as we expected. Remember what Daniel was told, though, when he was told that that decree would start a 70-year period. He was told that it would start, that's just to finish the thought we had before, the fullness of the Gentiles is the period we're in now. Oh, by the way, look at the bottom. Here's an interesting little notion. You have 10 at the bottom. We'll come back to that. And then you hear from Daniel... 24, remember, that there were 70 weeks. Do you notice what they're appointed for? They're for your people. They're for your holy city. That's the age of the Gentiles. And then there are six reasons given below. And those six reasons are uniquely for Israel and for the entry of Israel into their kingdom. So the original 70 years was to let the land rest. The next 490 plus has been for Israel to experience these six outcomes, which you see listed from to make end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and so on. That's the accomplishment of the age of the Gentiles for the next 490. The two combined are accomplishing what God has intended. So here's back to that chart again. So you have 10 plus 70. Now what's really interesting about that is you have 10 plus 70 equal 80. I know you didn't think that was interesting, but trust me, that's very interesting. Because 10 is the number in the Bible for testimony. So you have a testimony being given concerning the land Sabbath. God said you're gonna be outside the land. Here's your testimony to the world that I'm gonna give my land its rest. They were out by 10. 70 is the number of completion. 70 will put a completion to the end of the age of the Gentiles. And the two, two combined is 80. Eight is the number of new beginnings. This will set up the next thing, the kingdom. 80 will lead to a new beginning in the kingdom for Israel. So this is the period of history that we're currently a part of. Here's the summary. This is what you learned in Daniel overall. The age of the Gentiles is a period of time judging Israel for their disobedience under the old covenant. The age began with Babylon, continues until Christ. The age uh, concludes with a single world leader coming at the end to persecute the saints. He's ultimately destroyed by Christ's return. It, It lasts the 490 from the time of Cyrus, but there's that long pause that means we really don't know how long it's gonna last. It's still ongoing. Until God in heaven, decides it's time for the covenant to be struck and the clock starts. Until then, we don't know how long this goes. But in the moment that covenant is struck, you can count down seven years exactly to the second coming of Christ. Okay? And then finally, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then the final seven may begin. There's a lot more we're going to say on that when we get to next week. So don't think that's the Only thing you're gonna hear that satisfies the timing of why the church is or isn't involved. There's a lot more coming on that. But in the meantime, just understand that the timing of Daniel makes clear that the age that we're in has this break for a reason and a restarting of the last seven for a reason and we're not the reason that it's restarting. We're the reason it paused. Final picture. So you have in that graph I showed you earlier the things that come after. Next week, we start looking at that, but we start by looking one more time at the break between the church age and what follows so that we can understand what changes so that the last seven can begin and why. All right, that's our course tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as uh, difficult things continue to come and as complexity continues to unfold, I pray, Father, you just give us the clarity we need to follow it. And help us understand, Father, what you're doing in the world around us so that we can communicate it clearly to others. Get us ready for what's coming, Father, because we're excited to see it for we know, Father, that better things are planned for us. And we we invite those at the earliest opportunity, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right.